Friends, let's have a little prayer, and then we'll chat about a few little items, and then we'll start looking at the Bible. How does that sound? Good to everybody? Here we go. Father, we pause a moment, and we still our hearts and our minds and our souls. We breathe in and we breathe out. We smell good food. We are surrounded by people we love, people who love us. We gather in a place that's warm and dry and safe. And all of these things we think about because we know that every single one of them is from you. We know that all of the things we enjoy right now in this moment, even this moment itself, are a gift from your grace and your power and your love. And we want to remember those things. We want to lift them up before you and let you know that we try not to take them for granted and that we try to remember always that you give them to us because you love us, because you take joy in us, And then you invite us to become part of what you are doing as we share those same things with others. Especially we thank you for the gift of your word, your truth, your correction, your inspiration, your word by which we live and move and have our being. And so now as we open this word, peel back the layers of our ignorance and our fear and our stubbornness just a little bit more so that you can continue to remake and remold us into the image of yourself. We pray that in Jesus. Amen. Let's talk about the Scripture. As you remember, we are in a a conversation this fall about um, a particular theme, if you will. We're talking about one of the big problems of the world, which is the human community. Our unity with each other, our community with each other, our unity with God, our community with God, not just in a religious sense, but in a worldwide sense. How do seven and a half billion people, and it's probably a little more now, How do seven and a half billion people on the face of the planet get along with each other? That's the macro issue. The micro issue is how do you and I get along with ourselves and then all the other people that are immediately in front of us in our lives, including the people that are sitting around these tables. So we're looking at all of those things. We happen to believe as Christians that our faith that the Word of God, that the theology of the church, that the tradition and history of the church, that all of those things have something to say to us about every aspect of life. And this, of course, is one of the biggest questions of all, human community, human unity. As we noted at the outset of this conversation a few weeks ago, uh, the very opening lines of the Bible really get at the heart of that question when Adam and Eve have a discussion about what to do about the serpent's proposition, and then Cain and Abel have a further discussion about what to do about getting along with God and each other, and everything, of course, goes to hell in a handbasket, so to speak. So the Bible is extremely concerned about this issue of our unity and our community. And we're looking at it We're looking at that issue from the perspective of what our faith has to say. So, as we're reading these passages, that's kind of the overarching theme, even though there are many other things in these passages uh, that we could talk about and that we do need to talk about. Does that all make sense to everybody? It's got to be bound to do that by now. So, let's do this. Let's read uh, the passage first from Zechariah, and what I'd like to do um, is ask you to identify some of the themes, some of the issues, some of the questions that we might have, some of the, some of the puzzling things, and then let's talk a little bit about uh, Zechariah himself and his life and times and all that sort of thing as we begin to dive into the passage. So this is Zechariah chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. The word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, 
and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts shall be called the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of their great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, even though it seems impossible to the remnant of this people in these days, should it also seem impossible to me, says the Lord of hosts? Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to live in Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Okay. Let's just spit this out. This is the way I kind of approach Bible study. You read a passage and say, okay, let's, let's tear it apart. Let's dive into it. What is there that's interesting, that's informing, that's puzzling? What all is going on with that? Shout out some answers to me. God has a deep and passionate love and commitment to us. Absolutely. Yes, God was determined that Jerusalem would be a vibrant, lively city, even though it had been destroyed. Good. What else do you see here? Yes. Yes, yes. At the moment, Jerusalem's not doing very well, but God is going to rescue them and, and make things better. Absolutely. Yes. I am a jealous God. I'm the one. You're going to worship me, right? That word jealousy is a great word to talk about some more. Thanks for lifting that up. Yes. What else? Yes. There we go. What may seem to be impossible is not impossible to God. Yeah, good. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It, as, as Zechariah talks, or as God talks to Zechariah about, about what this renewal of Jerusalem is going to be about, it's not about Jerusalem's wealth or power or glory. It's the simple things. The old people sitting there, right? And the kids playing in the streets. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You guys are good at this stuff. Did you realize? Yeah, yeah, this is cool. What else is coming out there? Anything else? Yes, with God there is always hope. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. East and West come together in unity. Yeah, yeah. See, we've just identified 12 sermons right here. You see, people often ask me, they say, Jack, you know, how do you always come up with stuff to talk about? And the, the problem is not coming up with stuff to talk about, it's coming up with just talking about the one thing that you're trying to talk about that day and, and leaving everything else behind, isn't it? When you really die, they say, how can you study one book your whole life? How can you get all these people together to talk? And it's like, don't you know how much stuff there is here? It's exciting. It really is cool. And, and what's interesting to me is when we have these conversations, I hope it happens for you as it does for me, you always give to me new ideas, new perspectives, new ways of looking at something. And I hope I'm giving you some of those things as well. That's part of that conversation, isn't it? Okay, let's go into Zechariah just a little bit. Let me give you a little bit of historical information. We're, we're quite certain, <clears throat> when I say we, I'm talking about all the smart people that have done all the research. I'm just reading what they wrote, okay? <laughs> we're quite certain uh, that Zechariah began his, his public ministry of preaching, of prophesying uh, in Jerusalem and in that region around the year 520. Uh, we know that because at the very beginning of the book, you can go back and read it, he tells us that during the reign, I think it's of, of King Zerubbabel, uh, that, that, that Zechariah begins his work. And we have a lot of other historical information that tells us what was going on uh, with the different kings, and we can date things very well. Now, you of course will remember that 520 is during that period when the exiles who were taken into Babylon are being allowed to come back into Israel, uh, and, and they're trying to sort of rebuild the nation. 
this is after the northern kingdom in, in the 720s fell to the Assyrians and the southern kingdom around 587 fell to the Babylonians and then the Babylonians succumbed to the Persians and now the Persians are letting uh, the Jews go back to Israel and rejoin the Jews who had been left in Israel as well as come into a nation that had had lots of other people from other nations put there and they're trying to rebuild the city. It's actually fascinating to me. I just yesterday was looking at pictures um, that one of our people was uh, sending to us of the city of Mosul. Go back to Iraq. Um, and you've seen these kinds of pictures, uh, especially from Syria. You know, the buildings just in heaps of stone and rubble and, and burned out and bombed out and destroyed. That's the vision we need to have in mind of what Jerusalem looked like during Zechariah's time, right? So, the Persians have allowed Nehemiah, they've sent Nehemiah back into Jerusalem. Nehemiah was kind of a civil engineer, and Nehemiah's job is to rebuild the walls of the city and to start rebuilding the temple. And then Ezra has been sent back. Ezra is not an engineer. Ezra is a priest. Ezra's job is to rebuild the, the religion of the nation. And remember, the religion of the nation is not, not just a religion. It is the heart and soul of the entire culture of the Jewish people, right? And now Jeremiah uh, is going to help in that process. We th uh, excuse me, Zechariah. We think that Zechariah probably was from a family of priests. He gives a little bit of his genealogy at the beginning of the book, and some of those names are names of, of priests that we know about. And so um, Zechariah had been trained... He had grown up in the life of, of the religion of Israel, even though he had been in Babylon, now Persia, right? Modern day Iraq and Iran. <laughs> and, um, and so Zechariah comes back into, into uh, Yehud, was what the Persians called it. Uh, we can see whether you get the name Yehud or Judah, Yehuda, the same name. And, um, and he has a message from God. Were any of you impressed by how many times we had to read that phrase, the word of the Lord of hosts, thus says the Lord of the hosts, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord of hosts, thus says, it gets boring, doesn't it? Well, Zechariah is making a point. God is talking. And when God talks, what do we do? We listen, of course, of course. We listen to what God has to say about this particular circumstance and situation in Israel's history, right? Israel has been destroyed. It's being put back together. Israel is, is, it's even hard to talk about Israel as a nation at this point. It's a former nation, right? It, it, you might want to talk about it like we might talk about the Indian nations in the United States today, right? Pretty much obliterated and destroyed. And they're mere vestiges of what they once were. But we still call them a nation. Economically, this region around Jerusalem is struggling mightily. Because the, the area has been depopulated for many, many decades. And the, the, the economic health of the country is terrible. Everybody's poor, okay? Uh, socially, the country is just, is just decimated. Think about half of your family being taken off to a foreign country, and you never hear from them again, right? Think of what that does to relationships, right? Think about living in a little town, maybe on the outskirts of Jerusalem or Jerusalem itself, and, and, and that place, those homes where your family lived, they've left, and, and, and Babylon and Persia have taken some folks from Egypt or some, some other country that they've conquered and put them into those homes, right? There's tremendous social disruption. All of you have, are old enough to have lived through social disruption in your own lives, right? When relationships fall apart or something happens, it just, it, it, the whole society is struggling to function, right? Israel has no political power, no military power at this point. Everything in the nation is not working. And so God has a message. God has a message. And it begins in this particular passage with God's passionate love for Israel, right? Passion that's expressed in two fascinating words that we have to unpack a little bit. Jealousy and wrath, okay? Now, when we think of jealousy, 
what do we think of? We think of relationships where someone is jealous about another person, right? And we often use the word jealous in, in kind of a negative sense. We say, you shouldn't be jealous of other people, right? And here we're saying that God is jealous. Well, we need to remember that, that jealousy at its root is, is about deep, deep passion and commitment. And where we're talking about God and, and using our psychological terms to describe God, then we need to be a little bit careful because God is not a human being, right? We say God gets angry or God is jealous or whatever. We need to be careful with what we mean by that. Obviously, what, what Zechariah means here, what God means when he talks to Zechariah, is that I am jealous for you and with you. I am, I am madly, passionately in love with you, God would say. Lots of the language of the Hebrew language, lots of the overtones of it <clears throat> are kind of lost in our English translation, sometimes on purpose. Um, because the language that's used is the language of, of passionate, intimate love, right? Like the love between a man and a woman, right? God is passionate about us in that way. And so God's jealousy is about that passion for us. Let me ask you a question. Why, why would God be so jealous of us and for us and with us? Why is that a positive and good thing? In, in, in human relationships, we often say that jealousy is a negative thing, right? Why would we say it's a positive thing when it relates to God's jealousy for us? Can you think of any reason? Yes. Yes, exactly. God wants to be in relationship with us and wants us to want a relationship with Him, okay? Now, let's ask this question. Does God want that because God is a needy individual? No, no. God doesn't need us. God wants us. Who is needy in the relationship? We are. We are. Exactly. God loves us so much, and God knows that we need Him so much that He knows that without Him, we're toast. And so He's jealous for our love because He knows that's what's going to be best for us. Isn't that fascinating? And so that's how we understand God's jealousy. Let's talk about wrath now for a minute. We use the term jealousy quite a lot these days. We, I almost never hear anybody talk about wrath. Have you, have you used the word wrath in your normal conversation in the last 24 hours? No, right? So what is God's wrath about, right? Well, we use the term wrath to talk about deep and passionate anger, right? We say if someone is filled with wrath, they are angry about something, okay? And, and that's actually part of what the Bible wants to say when it talks about God's wrath. Why though, why we, th we think of anger as a bad thing generally. Why would God's anger be a good thing? What is God angry about? Say it again. We don't listen to Him, right? There is kind of a superior, inferior thing going on here. I'm God and you don't listen to me? Really? <laughs> right? That is part of it for sure. We lose that part a lot of times in modern-day conversation about God. God has the right. God is actually the only one who has the right to be angry about anything because He's the only one who ultimately is offended. He's the only perfect one. There's another side to God's wrath and God's anger, right? And I think maybe the best way to get in touch with this is to think about a parent-child relationship, right? God is angry because something takes us away from Him, and something takes us away from the life that we are meant to have. Actually, something kills us. Something destroys us. And that is when we are not in a relationship with God. God gets angry when something takes us away from Him, because, not because He's personally hurt, but because He knows that it destroys us. Does that make sense? That's how we understand God's wrath. It's not just that God is bigger than we are and He has the right to be angry with us. His anger is actually more against the evil that would take us away from Him than it is against any sense that His pride is injured. Does that make sense? 
Okay, so that's who God is. In this message, it's important to understand this is who God is. This is the nature of, of a healthy relationship between us and God when we understand this is who God is, right? And so then what is God going to do? Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. When it says I'm going to return, what does that imply? It means I've been gone, right? Douglas MacArthur, right? I shall return. I left the Philippines. God's coming back. The way that Israel conceived this was actually the way that all ancient religions conceived it. When things were going well, it meant that your God was there with you. If God left, if God didn't care about you, if God turned His back on you, if God got upset with you and left, things began to go poorly, okay? That idea is behind this idea when God says, I'm going to return to Zion, I'm going to return to Jerusalem to be with you. Now, Israel well knew, and of course we well know, that God never totally leaves us, right? We're the ones who leave God. <laughs> and when we leave God, then things begin to go poorly, right? We're not in the relationship with God. God's going to come back to Zion, to Jerusalem, to the holy mountain, all different words used to describe that place where Israel had found its, its home and its true heritage. The mountaintop city of Jerusalem that David eventually took over, where David built his palace, where Solomon, David's son, built the, the temple, and the place that was kind of the visible symbol of this nation of Israel. God's coming back. God's been gone for a long time, it seems. But God is coming back because of His passionate love for us, right? I'm going to come back, and Jerusalem is going to be called a faithful city now, implying that Jerusalem at one time was an unfaithful city, right? The mountain of the Lord of hosts, this is where I'm going to be. And then we have this incredible image. I want to talk about this image for a little bit because it talks about old men, and I'm really interested in old men these days. <laughs> old men and old women will sit with their with their canes, with their staffs in the streets. Okay, so what? Why is that a simple little image, a simple idea, right? Or, or the children are going to be playing in the streets, right? It's a beautiful, beautiful image. I think of, uh, what's his name, was it Louis Armstrong? Uh, it's a beautiful, it's a wonderful world, you know, I see leaves of green, da-da-da-da, yeah, I won't sing it. Um, why is that so important to mention here? Yes? Safety. It's safe to be in the streets. Every single one of you here has been in a place where it was not safe to be in the streets. Okay? What else is going on here? Yes? Relationships, yeah. This is, it's not stated explicitly here, but this is like grandma and grandpa are watching the grandkids, right? What an amazing thing. Have I told you about my grandson Corbin? No, no. <laughs> right? Yeah, what else, what else does this evoke? Yes. There we go. Yeah, the wisdom of the old, the, the, the liveliness, the vitality, the virility of the young, that means things are going to flourish, right? Things are as they are meant to be. The best that we have in this world is that when a generation is born and grows up and new generations are produced and the old generations go away and the cycle continues. That's the way it should be. I don't know why I'm reminded of this. Will I use it Sunday? Maybe I'll use it Sunday, but you'll forget it by then because I will. I was told, I don't know if this is true, I was told that there's an ancient Chinese proverb, uh, a blessing that goes like this. Uh, when you're standing with someone, you say to them, you die, your children die, your grandchildren die. Now, that doesn't sound like a blessing, does it? <laughs> may you die, may your children die, may your grandchildren die. What that means is, May you fulfill the, what we hope is the normal cycle of life in the normal way. Not, may your children die before you. Not, may your grandchildren die before you. 
but may you live to the fullness of your years and see generations come and generations go. That is a blessing. That is a beautiful thing, right? So we have this image that God gives to Zechariah, that Zechariah then gives to the people of the way things are supposed to be. This is almost a, a, a Garden of Eden image that's here, right? Now, remember, Zechariah is preaching and teaching and prophesying to people uh, who have lost a lot of their family members. They're dead. They're gone. They've been deported. They're never going to hear from them again. Or they've been deported and now they've come back and they've left a relatively prosperous, wealthy area, you know, especially uh, Babylon. I mean, Babylon was rich and wonderful. The Persian Empire was rich and wonderful. And now they come back to this burned out, bombed out, destroyed, economically impoverished, socially fractured, politically powerless region. How would that hit you? That's tough. But there's this beautiful message coming from God. It's going to be better, even though it seems impossible, right? I I love that phrase, with God all things are possible. God is saying to the people, He says, does this seem like it's an impossible dream? Think about who you're talking to. If God can make everything from nothing, does God not also have the power to remake everything? It's simple logic there. And that's the basis, who was it that mentioned the word hope? That's the basis of our hope. When everything is destroyed, the basis of our hope lies in the jealous passion of God for us, right? Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country and will bring them to live in Jerusalem. Who are God's people? I will save my people, God says. Who are God's people? The Jews. Is there a possibility that anybody else is included in that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. We read that phrase and kind of gloss over it, and certainly there are two answers to that, right? One answer, God says, I have called you to be my people. I'm going to bring my family, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, we're all going to come home, right? That's one of the big stories about all of Judaism of all time is the dispersion, the diaspora around the world, but the hope then to come back. There's another story that begins to be told about who God's people are, right? And this is part of what gets Jesus into trouble later on. We'll start talking about Jesus in a minute, right? When Jesus starts talking about all y'all, all the people, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles are all going to come to Jerusalem. Where else do we see images in the Bible of the city of Jerusalem being restored, renewed, made perfect again? Revelation. Revelation. Thank you very much. Revelation. It's actually one of the final images that we have given to us in Scripture, right? Revelation 20 and 21, 22. Behold, I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, right? Not, not so much the physical city necessarily, but the new human community, the new dwelling place of God with His people. It's not surprising to see how John would hear Jesus talking about the restoration of Jerusalem because Jesus' Bible was books like Zechariah, which is one of the reasons we take the Old Testament seriously is because that was Jesus' Bible. If it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us, right? It's it, the whole message of the Scripture holds together. It pulls together. I will be their God. They will be my people. Think back to the initial conversation that God had with Abraham. God shows up to Abraham, who's minding his own business in Iraq, Ur of the Chaldees, and says, Hi. I'm the God of everything that is, and I have a plan for your life. You're going to be my people, and I have a big idea here. 
That idea continues. This is now at least 800, 900, 1,000 years after that initial promise to Abraham. After it seems like time and time and time again, the people are obliterated and destroyed, the promise is null and void. No, not so much. It's still the promise. Okay, let's hold that in our minds now, and let's go to something, to another passage from Matthew that might seem to you like it has no relationship whatsoever to the Zechariah passage. But we're going to find where it is, or at least where I think it is. Matthew 12, verses 22 to 28. I don't need to give you so much background about Matthew. You know all that. Then they, the people around Jesus, perhaps His disciples, then they brought to Him, Jesus, a demoniac who was blind and mute, and He cured him so that the one who had been mute could speak and see. All the crowds were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons, that this fellow casts out the demons. He knew what they were thinking and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your own exorcists cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Okay, let's do the same thing with this passage that we did with Zechariah. What are the ideas, the images, the questions, the confusing things that that pop out for you? There we go. Yes, the kingdom is restored. Zechariah is talking ultimately, though he doesn't use the term here, he's talking about the kingdom of God. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. Yeah, the Pharisees living by the letter of the law, right? Right? Refusing to see what's there in front of their faces. Yep, absolutely. Maybe, maybe this Jesus is the son of David, right? Yeah, there's some important code language going on there. There we go. Jesus is about the business of restoring, right? Blind and mute, and, and He's healed. Good. There's lots of fascinating stuff that goes on here. Let me give you just a little bit of background. Let's start to take this apart. Let's talk about exorcisms first and demonic possession and what that's all about. You and I live in a very, very different age where we think we understand the physical or biological sources of things like muteness and deafness, right? Uh, We do not normally attribute hearing loss to demonic possession anymore, okay? And we understand that. We understand that. We, had, we now have some, some scientific understanding, if you will, of the source of a lot of the evils that, that fall on people, right? We know where arthritis comes from. We know about all of those things. So can we take this story seriously? That's the question that modern people have, right? Well, let me propose a couple of thoughts to you. Even though we understand different sources of the evils that befall us, I would propose to you that there still is evil involved in all of the things that we suffer, right? Evil is anything that takes us away from God. Evil is anything that replaces God. Evil is anything that cancels out or fights against the blessing and the perfection that God would want us to have in life. And so, what ancient people might call demonic possession, we might call inflammation or genetic defect or something else like that. We might have a different name for it, but at its root, it is the same thing. Does that make sense to you? Now, I do not mean to discount the possibility and what I believe is the reality that there are actually spiritual, mysterious, unknown forces at work in the world that are either for God or against God, okay? I'm not meaning to say that there are not demonic beings, if you will. 
But I am meaning to say that there is a way to understand the truth and reality of this that can put that question aside even for a moment and still speak very powerfully to all the evils that we face in the world today. What is more interesting to me is that in Jesus' day, there were lots of people who conducted exorcisms. Notice that Jesus never says here that the exorcisms that the Pharisees accomplished, that the the ones that they do, are not exorcisms. He takes it for granted that other people in other ways are able to bring evil out, okay? The issue is what's the source of that? What's the source of that? Now, we know that in in most exorcisms, and including modern-day exorcisms, have to be a lot of prayers, sometimes there's some incense, there's all kinds of ritual and stuff involved to invoke the powers of God to bring evil out of a person. In the situation of, of the New Testament, when Jesus exorcises someone, right, all He does is stand there and say, you, come out, boom, done. That made the Pharisees nervous. I think that if Jesus had done exorcisms the way they did exorcisms, they would have been fine with it. Jesus didn't need all that other hocus-pocus. Why? Because He's God. Just you, come out. Boom, it's done. Go into that herd of pigs over there, however the story goes, right? It's fascinating. What's also fascinating is that the Pharisees are trying to discredit Jesus, say, oh, well, you know, this guy is is conducting exorcisms by the power of the devil. And Jesus brings up the complete uh, illogic of their argument. Really? Do you think the devil's fighting against himself? A kingdom divided against itself will not stand. Actually, a couple of interesting ideas going on with the kingdom idea here. Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come among you now. That's really Jesus' overall message. That's what He starts preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is right here. Here's a piece of the evidence of the kingdom of heaven. Not just grandma and grandpa sitting on the rocker on the front porch watching the grandkids play in the street, but a mute and blind man restored to health yet more evidence of the restoration of the kingdom of heaven. It happens in the person, in the work, in the presence of Jesus, who is the Savior. And as it happens, it calls the kingdom together, right? Zechariah lays it out in very, very simple to understand terms. East and west are coming, right? When we give the invitation to the communion cable, people will come from east and west, from north and south, meaning from every where? To sit at table in the kingdom of God. Here is the kingdom of God. Jesus is bringing it all together. He's throwing the devil out, and he's bringing everybody together. Because a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Now, he's using that phrase to refer to the kingdom of the devil. But let's talk about the kingdom of God. Is the kingdom of God divided? Are the people of God divided? The only way to answer that question is yes. There are, we're told that there are about 32,000 different Christian denominations around the face of the globe today. Presbyterians are a tiny, tiny little minority of that. One of the reasons for the 32,000 is because many denominations are expressed in nationalistic terms. There's the Presbyterian churches in America, the Presbyterian churches in Canada, in Mexico, in Syria, in Iraq, in Lebanon, all around the world. They're still part of the same family, but they're just divided nationally, right? But if you take those distinctions away, there are still 15,000 or so denominations that exist that all call themselves Christian, except there are lines between them, right? Part of what we'll talk about Sunday is how it is that the kingdom of God is compromised and weakened and that its message is diluted because of the divisions that exist among the people of God. Jesus talks about that here, right? Who were the Pharisees? They were good Jews, They were the most serious Jews of all the Jews in Judaism in Jesus' time. In fact, that's what Dale Bruner calls them. 
Some of you know about Bruner. He's a brilliant biblical commentator, and of course he's a Presbyterian. But Bruner, Bruner, when he's talking about the Pharisees, he calls them the serious. Not the Pharisees, the serious. And they're completely wrong about the business of Jesus. And that divides and hurts the body, the family of God. Isn't that interesting? Ultimately, it all comes back to what Jesus is doing, who Jesus is, what he says. And now you have to put Zechariah and Matthew together, right? Those serious Pharisees were surely aware of everything that Zechariah said, except they didn't see that God was restoring the human community. God was restoring people, bringing his kingdom to pass in the person and work of Jesus. They couldn't see it. They didn't want to see it. Questions, thoughts? What does the Presbyterian and other churches, how do they feel about that practice? Yeah, the practice of exorcism. What do we do with that today? Um, obviously, there's a wide range of belief and practice of the business of exorcism today. We have to say that most modern Western Christian denominations um, sort of poo-poo the practice today. We have been so thoroughly indoctrinated in uh, the ideas of science that we mostly dismiss the idea that evil is present in, in people sometimes. And we think the way to heal people uh, is with drugs and with surgery and with therapies, okay? Now, I'm all for drugs and surgery and therapies. Don't get me wrong, right? I, I do a lot of work to try to help the medical community. With that said, there are many Christian denominations in uh, developing world countries that are not so thoroughly indoctrinated into the ideas of the scientific world and they recognize more clearly, I think, the presence of spiritual issues, of spiritual beings, of something that's beyond our science that comes to bear and that has actual impact and power in our lives today. And in those places, exorcisms are still practiced and still accomplished. Um, is there abuse of that? Of course there is. It's really easy to pretend an exorcism. Except what's not easy to pretend is when there are people who are, are physically, visibly uh, distressed, destroyed, compromised by something in them, who after a process of prayer and all the things involved with exorcism are healed. We can't say, just because we think we're scientists, we can't say that somebody's healing through an exorcism has not happened. Yeah, we can say it if we watch, you know, somebody walk into the auditorium on their own two feet and then pick up their crutches and go up on the stage and get healed and throw their crutches away, all right? That happens. But what we cannot say to those people where someone has been physically compromised with a disease or emotionally, mentally compromised with illness and then goes through a process of exorcism, and they are healed. We can't say that that doesn't happen, because it does happen. And so, the way I deal with it personally, okay, is to say that we, we in the Western scientific enlightenment world need to understand that there is more going on in the human psyche, the human soul, and the human body than just the physical. And any physician worth his or her salt knows that, right? We have lots of evidence of the impact of the spirit upon the body from our Western world, right? There are all kinds of studies that have shown, uh, they, they did that years ago with heart, page, heart patients, right? People that had heart surgery. Uh, the people who were being prayed for had better physical outcomes than people who were not being prayed for, Right? There, there is a direct connection between body and soul, and, and we have to believe that if we believe the story of creation. The story of creation does not say that God made your body and your soul. 
God made you. He breathed spirit into your physicalness, and that's you. There is a direct connection. Now, that, I'm still going to take antibiotics, right? And I'm still going to go for surgery if I need surgery. But I also am going to invoke the power of God's healing and prayer for my spiritual health and well-being. And that's what exorcism really tries to get at in my mind. Does that make sense to you? Evil, genetic defect yes. and evil. I'm, I'm trying to put that together. I know, you know, genetic defects happen all the time, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, however, how do we associate that with evil? Can a genetic defect produce an evil person? Um, good question. Can a genetic defect produce an evil person? Let me, let me start here by saying that there are no evil persons. There are only persons who are, who are awash with evil in them. Okay, I believe that every human being created on the face of the planet ever through all of history, including Adolf Hitler and whatever other horrible people you want to mention, were, were created and were intended by God to be the beautiful creations that He means for all of us to be, right? But do people give themselves completely to evil? Does evil completely overwhelm people? Yes, it does. So, with genetic defect... What I see is that uh, the fact that the, the, the creation of new human beings through the process of our genes and all the stuff that goes on with DNA and, and all of that stuff, that there is, there is an inherent evil built into all of that because it's not a perfect process, right? Some people are born with the tendency towards Tay-Sachs syndrome, right? Uh, or, or sickle cell anemia, uh, leukemia, or whatever else it is, right? Um, that's not God's intention, that, but that's the nature of the fundamental uh, uh, corruption and disruption of God's creation. That's also part of what the story of Genesis is about. Even the whole creation is not quite perfectly in balance. Paul talks about that in Romans, right? Saying, the whole creation awaits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of men. That's Paul's way of saying the whole creation awaits God's ultimate restoration and redemption. And so we do have arguments, of course, about what genetic defect is, and some things that we have seen historically as defects, maybe or not defects, so to speak. There's another conversation there. But that's where I put that conversation. I think you can take all of that stuff back to some kind of theological meaning that does justice to the biblical message, but also does justice to what we understand through our science. A genetic defect is a physical thing. Mm -hmm. um, it is how it is responded to by the mind and the soul that is the important thing. So the mind and the soul probably um, is not evil, but if it responds in an evil way or an evil can get into that person because of the genetic defect or the condition of life, then that's the problem. I don't think a genetic defect is really God's punishment or anything like that. Some people think that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you bring the punishment question into that, yeah, everybody is built with something in them that's not quite perfect. I know it's hard when you look at me to believe that's true, but it is true. Right? And, and we do have a responsibility to respond, right? To make a decision, okay? My genetic heritage tells me, uh, you know, that I'm going to be bald and that I'm going to, you know, struggle with weight and that I'm going to struggle with blood uh, sugar issues, okay? But I can choose to do something about that to some extent, right? I have never tried Rogaine, by the way. I could care, I could care less about hair on my head right? But I do need to do something about blood sugar issues, right? Or let's talk about so-called mental illness, right? Now, I'm convinced that, that, that sometimes mental illness simply overtakes a person. And no matter, no matter what we try to do about our situation, we are helpless to change anything, which, by the way, means we need a savior to save us, right? Uh, and yet we also do know that there are things that we can do to some limited extent to promote better emotional, spiritual, mental health and some things that we can just give ourselves over to. So it's a complicated thing. Jesus would never condemn someone for the evil that washes over them, but he also would never let anyone off the hook and say, well, that's just the way you are, just go ahead. 
That's not what Jesus did. What Jesus did do was reach into people and rescue them. And he's the only one who could do it perfectly and the only one who could do it without anything other than his word. There's that word thing that goes on. Jesus speaks a word, just like God speaks a word to create everything, Jesus speaks a word and it's done. Doesn't take surgery and drugs and, drugs and psychotherapy. <laughs> it just takes the word. Okay, I better stop. One last thing and then I'll stop. I just had a quick question when, you know, the house divided against itself. So how as Christians do we walk through that? Because we as Christians are divided. So that means we're not doing a very good job of keeping our house together. Yep, yep, yep. Very good question. Yeah, again, Jesus uses that phrase to refer to Satan divided against himself, but it applies equally, and many other parts of Scripture talk about the, the kingdom of the family of God that needs to be together. Um, I can give you a million ideas that I hope we practice here in some sense about how the family is brought together rather than torn apart. And to me, the beginning of that and, and really the end of it, the sum total of it, is in focusing on Jesus, right? Now, you and I, or you and I and everybody else in the world can have a lot of conversations about what we think about Jesus and how we interpret Jesus and how we live out our discipleship to Jesus, and those things will not be identical, of course. But at the end of the day, what we're going to agree about, and that's what makes us Christian, is that we agree that Jesus Christ is, or that, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God the Savior of all humanity, whether humanity wants Him to be the Savior or not, right? We agree on certain fundamental things about who Jesus is, what Jesus was doing, and if we stay clustered very tightly around Jesus, that's going to keep us together, and that's what strengthens our body and strengthens our witness. When we start getting off into insignificant, inconsequential things, like you got to wear a robe to worship, or you got to sing old hymns to worship, or you got to wear blue jeans to worship, or whatever all that other stupid stuff is, that's when we begin to get divided. And that's, that's evil. That's evil. How much longer do you want to spend? I can keep going. <laughs> this is fun. Let's have a prayer and go. God, thank you so much for the joy of conversation, for the joy of sharing, for the wonderful way you encourage us and correct us and guide us through the words of brothers and sisters and especially through your word. May it be to your glory and may you continue to strengthen us and to build us into your kingdom into which we can welcome others for the sake of Jesus. Amen.